Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You and Get Well, which is the name of the magazine now in UK supermarkets and major stores. But uh, uh, more about that a bit later. The eagle-eared amongst you may notice we're a little bit chesty and wheezy this week, and both <laughs> both, both of us are. We've been suffering from coughs and colds all this week, and um, which makes me think, well... What would the editor of What Doctors Don't Tell You slash Get Well take for a common cold? What are you, what are you taking then? Well, first of all, we had slightly different kinds of uh, respiratory illnesses in that Brian had a, a fluey cold and was um, feeling really unwell and, and tired. It was a lot worse that, than you, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, I was. You were. I was. You were. I have a mini-me <laughs> version of it. Yeah. But... For Brian, I gave him homeopathy, which is a thing called gelsimium, which is brilliant for flus. When you're feeling like tired, achy, all of that kind of thing. Mm. I have found over the years it works really well with all the members of my family in raising people up from the dead, essentially. Um, so you had that and mm -hmm. you had a few other things, um, a few other things like olive leaf extract. Mm -hmm. For myself, I took olive leaf extract, high doses of vitamin C, and for both of us, I gave us a, a herb called, an herb in the States, mm -hmm. called andrographis. And this herb is so brilliant because it just seems to kill colds and flu dead, you know, where it takes away the really awful effects of them. So I've taken that, and mine has not really developed into what Brian has. It's essentially going away. Now, aside from that, we also... Um, took some cough medicine that's a really lovely uh, holistic mix of pr um, propolis and manuka honey, which are both fantastic cold fighters. So we really do walk the talk. We don't reach for paracetamol or night nurse when we're, you know, when we've got colds, we really use holistic stuff. As you'd hope. As you'd expect. That's good. You mentioned their homeopathy, Lynn, uh, which brings us to our first news item from the Department of Having a Cake and Eating It. Um, <laughs> as everyone knows, the skeptics of homeopathy argue that it must entirely be a placebo because the uh, actual original ingredient is so diluted that there can't be any trace of it left. So therefore, there's no active part of it that could be doing any good. And uh, as a result, any good that you do feel must be all in your mind. And that's always been the argument. But uh, the Food and Drug Administration of America, America's drug regulator, begs to differ. In fact, they say that homeopathic remedies can cause significant and permanent harm. So they've issued a special advisory to consumers warning them that homeopathic pills have the potential to cause significant and even permanent harm if they're poorly manufactured, they add in parentheses. Um, but uh, nonetheless, they say that the problem is homeopathic remedies made from a wide range of substances, including ingredients derived from plants, healthy or diseased animals or human sources, minerals and chemicals, including known poisons. So for that very reason, they're ramping up the warning to consumers right now and telling them to 
but for God's sake, don't take these homeopathic pills. You'll be dead in minutes. And uh, they're especially worried about children and the elderly taking homeopathic remedies. Um, they've actually recently issued warning letters to 10 manufacturers of homeopathic eye drops, warning them off because of the, the deadly poisons in homeopathic remedies. So there you are. I've never heard such a cake-and-eat-it uh, treatise before, Lynn. What do you think? Well, it's clear that the authorities are ramping up against holistic medicine. And they're really targeting homeopathy. We've mm. seen this in the UK where, you know, the authorities and also skeptics are really targeting homeopathy, trying to take it out of the National Health Service. And in America, un in an unprecedented move, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is now doing this. This is completely unscientific hogwash. And what really irritates me about this the most is it just demonstrates, number one, how completely crooked the FDA is, how much they are in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, which is getting increasingly worried about holistic medicine and ramping up their attacks. And secondly, it betrays a complete ignorance of how homeopathy works. First of all, yes, homeopathy is made from all kinds of animal products and all of them, poisons and all of the things that they say initially, but it's diluted. It's a completely different medical paradigm to the conventional system, which treats, um, it uses one thing to treat another thing. Homeopathy uses the same thing or something that would create the same symptoms to get rid of them. It's the law of similarities. Um, it's however it works, it works. And the basis, what it, of, basis of vaccinations. Well, exactly, mm -hmm. except that we're talking about high dilutions where uh, homeopathic products, uh, you take you know, a, a tiny dilution of, you, you diluted it first, then you dilute that, and just take one drop of that and dilute that in water, then take one drop of that and dilute that in a whole bunch of water. So by the time you've finished with it and are actually have a homeopath, homeopathic remedy, you have none of the original substance left, not one molecule of the substance left. What you have is its energetic footprint. Now, does that sound weird? <coughs> Maybe, unless you are a frontier physicist. Now, a batch of, of physicists, including two noted physicists now dead in Italy, discovered that water behaves like nothing else in nature in the sense that it forms, molecules of water form what is called coherent domains around a, uh, an energy of another substance. And so, in a sense, they tape record it. And so that energetic footprint gets tape recorded and seems to have an effect. Now, looking at other quantum properties of this, um, no less than the co-discoverer of the AIDS virus, Luc Montagne, has been doing extensive um, research in this and demonstrated that people like the French biologist Jacques Benveniste, who did also studies into homeopathy by looking at the memory of water, said he's right.
It's true. So the problem is the FDA is talking about something that doesn't fit their paradigm. But the idea that homeopathic remedies cause harm, to my knowledge, there has never been a death from homeopathy. But conventional medicine kills two jumbo jets of people every other day in America alone. So spot the difference. We've just turned the clocks back as we head for another winter. Gives us a bit more daylight in the morning. And come the spring, we'll put the clocks forward again. And um, we've done this for years and years and years. I know there's a lot of debate going on about this, whether we should do it at all. And the um, European Union have already vetoed it, and they're planning to stop the practice in its entirety in a few years' time. And I know there's similar debates going on in the States right now. And um, it's all for good reasons, I'm sure, but none to do with your health. And the um, researchers from the Vanderbilt University Medical (coughs) Center reckon that health actually is one of the issues we should be considering when we turn the clocks back, because they're saying that our bodies, our body clocks rather, go out of sync. And it's not just for a few weeks or a few days, whatever, after we've done it, they reckon our bodies could be out of sync for as much as eight months as a result. And this has a possible impact on our overall health, uh, such as our our heart health in particular, and that uh, we are more likely to suffer a heart attack, stroke, and even suffer accidents, I suppose, driving a car, whatever it might be, uh, soon after we've turned the clocks back or forwards. And they just feel that this is a price maybe too too high to pay for a little bit more daylight in the morning. Um, it's an interesting point, and they say that it um, this, this simple manoeuvre of one hour, which doesn't sound a lot, they say actually has a profound impact on our biological clocks and uh, affects alertness and energy levels, as well as, of course, our heart health. And they're arguing that maybe we should stop doing it. Um, I mean, is this something, I don't know, it's an odd thing. We do do it, but, um, I mean, some states, I think, don't do it at all, do they? I think there's Arizona. One Arizona doesn't do it at all. And um, another state has just voted to stop doing it. Uh, I believe that's Tennessee, but they have to get Congress's approval before they'd be allowed to carry it out. But um, otherwise, we all do do it. And um, But now there's a very good health reason why perhaps we shouldn't. I mean, I don't know. If it, if, I, mean, I don't think they've actually done actual studies just to actually link this to specifically to heart attacks or other problems, maybe... Do, you know, car crashes, number of car crashes rise after the clocks change? I don't know. I don't know if anyone studied this at all. I don't know quite what the evidence is to support the um, the theory. But uh, do you have any thoughts, Lynn? Yeah, I do, actually. And it's a, it has to do with a lot of research I've done in my other work for uh-huh. the field and, and the bond and the intention experiment. And <clears throat> what it has to do with is the effect of light and the sun on all living things. Mm. Um, researchers like the late Franz Halberg and, uh, at, from the University of Minnesota did massive study 
um, about the effect of the sun and other planets on our health and longevity and lots of other things. And he actually even called the sun the Zeitgeber, which means the timekeeper. Um, he found that um, solar activity and the time of certain solar activity has a profound effect, um, not simply light, but also um, the energetic things that come out of the sun. I mean, the sun is a giant ball of gases crossed with a lot of magnetic fields. So every so often, that's a recipe for explosions. Every so often, the sun hurls its gaseous stuff toward Earth. That hits a thing called a geomagnetic shield surrounding the Earth. And that, what becomes actually a faint um, effect actually has profound effect on all living things, including human beings. And one of the things that it has a big effect on are the two energetic systems of the body, the heart and the brain. When there's a lot of solar activity, heart attacks increase, epileptic fits increase, you know, we get energetically destabilized. So think about it. If you change the timing with light and you change that solar effect on you, you may have other effects too. And of course, light also has a big effect on, on the release of melatonin. You know, light and darkness are really central to melatonin, which is not only about feeling about, you know, we know about it for, for jet lag, mm. but it also has a lot of other effects on our body. It really has very important effects. So I'm not surprised that a change of light, some change between our rela relationship between us and the sun could have this kind of profound That's effect. Interesting. We well, just shouldn't be messing uh, with nature. Well, there you are. If there are any independent researchers out there, here's a thing to put your name on the map. Go and find out if heart attacks, strokes, even automobile accidents increase after the clocks change. There you are. There's a challenge. Now, we're urban sophisticates, I think it's fair to say. And as a result of that, we sort of eat, I suppose, quite late in the evening. Well, I said not that late, but, you know, half seven, eight o'clock, maybe not that late. But people say that's still too late. And uh, a, a lot of folk like to get most of their food eaten by six o'clock. Um, and there seems to be some medical evidence to support that and says it's rather the best thing to do for your health. Um, the Let's see now, it's New York's Columbia University have had a look at this. And uh, they've been testing people and uh, their um, heart health in particular uh, in relation to when they have most of their daily calorie intake. Now, they're not saying people you can't eat after 6 p.m., but if you do eat later, you should eat little and lightly because if you eat most of your food after 6 p.m., you increase your risks of heart problems. You could have higher blood pressure, a higher BMI, which is the body mass index count, and you could have poorer blood sugar levels, which are all early signs of diabetes, of course. And they did this test amongst a group of 112 women and tested them on when they ate their last major meal of the day, 
and and what happened to their heart health. And there seems like a direct correlation almost between uh, the you know, the hour they ate and their, their general um, heart health. And the later they ate, the worse their heart health was. Now, I mean, it's quite an interesting study. And... Um, but I always get a bit concerned about these sorts of studies as well, because there are just so many variables, aren't there? There's are so many other factors that could be included, which probably haven't been, you know, such as, well, what are they eating for one? Are they healthy otherwise? Do they exercise? Do they, all the rest of it. And, you know, this, it didn't seem to me that this has been taken into account. But I think, you know, the, the take home message of it is still nonetheless quite interesting that post 6 p.m. we should, if we are going to be eating, eating light and eating little rather than saving up your main meal of the day for, mm. for after 6. Makes sort of sense, doesn't it? Well, it makes sense with a lot of the latest evidence about mm. healing diets. And mm. one of the huge things that lots of doctors are talking about um, and holistic doctors and integrative specialists are the whole idea of mini fasting, you know, inter intermittent fasting. And by that, they mean just gi giving the body a space without food to kind of regenerate. And one of the big times you can do intermediate, uh, intermittent fasting is between dinner and breakfast. Mm. And so they talk a lot of times about eating dinner early, maybe not having that be the main meal of the day also. And extending the time before you have breakfast. So you have a mini fast of maybe 12 hours or more, uh, 14 hours, 15 hours, in between dinner the night before and breakfast the next day. So eating early would support all of that. And they're finding more and more that intermittent fasting is a brilliant way to heal all manner of illnesses. I mean, mm. they've been mm. looking at it with um, all kinds of things, with mm. heart, with a lot of chronic type illnesses, and mm. they find it all, it, you know, it's, it's very, very it's uh, useful. Yeah. Well, I think also that, you know, the other factor, of course, is your body probably is going to be less active after 6 p.m., you know, and most people, after they've had a main meal of the evening, what do they do next? Sit down and watch the telly or read a book or do something rather than run around the block. So, you know, you're not burning that off. Your body is not able to process this food and you're sleeping on it in a sense. And I suppose it does sort of make sense in that regard. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard though, isn't it? Because, you know, we all are locked into our lifestyles through work or whatever it might be and go home and prepare a meal. And the idea of eating before six is pretty hard when you're still in the office. And I think that's that's the problem. I mean, unless you change your eating habits so you have your main meal at lunchtime, but then you probably need an understanding boss who lets you go out and have, <coughs> have, have your food then. So you know, it's problematic, isn't it? But I think, you know, the, the idea that maybe we should all learn to eat a little bit more lightly in the evening if we can't uh, you know, get around the problem of eating after six is something maybe to, to consider. I think it could actually be worthwhile and in, in, good for our health in the long term. Absolutely. Mm. And also delaying breakfast. If you can't 
you know, if you have to have a late dinner, mm. delaying breakfast well, still gets that yeah, intermittent well, that, fasting. That food spacing of 12 hours, mm-hmm. twixt your last meal and breakfast, mm. can, can, can be good. Anyway, thanks, Lynn. And so to your favourite subject of all, Lynn. No, it's not me. It's how life and environment and the things that we do can trump our genetic code. You know, I mean, the number of time in modern medicine runs on genetics and the risk factor based upon your genetic inheritance and, you know, women are having sort of, you know, mastectomies and goodness knows what because they've got the BRAC2 gene, all the rest of it. And, um, but time and time again, a study seems to come out saying, yes, yes, there you may have a genetic predisposition, but it's not a it's not a death sentence, and there's plenty you can do to ensure it doesn't happen to you. And there's yet another example of that just come out from the Massachusetts General Hospital, who found that even a little bit of exercise every day can ward off depression but in people who have a genetic disposition for depression. So even doing, they said, well, 35 minutes, any exercise you like, it could be high intensity, such as aerobic or dance, or it could be low intensity, yoga or stretching. Either way, it doesn't matter. But your chances of uh, suffering a, a depressive episode diminish quite dramatically um, if you do this even if you have a genetic uh, predisposition. Um, They uh, followed a group of about 8,000 people, all with this genetic risk, uh, for two years and um, saw if they would exercise around about two hours a week. That's all that was required of them. And those that uh, exercised saw a 17% reduction in their risk of a new depressive episode. And, uh, and it was for every additional four hours of exercise equated to that 17% reduction. So if you exercise for eight hours a week, that's down by 34% if my maths aren't wrong, which I think is quite astonishing, really, that despite all this predisposition, your genetic profile, a bit of yoga, a bit of aerobic, a bit of stretching completely counters it. Well, I'm not surprised, Brian. Mm. As you as you said, mm. I've done a lot of research on epigenetics, mm. the idea that environment trumps genes and that the real effect of genes, genes are just like the keys of a piano that sit there silently waiting to be played. And what plays them are all of those environmental effects, mm. uh, you know, food we eat, the water we drink, the friends we have, you know, the sum total of how we live our lives. And uh, there have been studies looking at people with a a predisposition to depression. And one of my favorite compared uh, people who did not have the genetic disposition, um, but lived uh, more solitary existences without a big social network to people in in the East Mm. who had a bigger, a higher genetic propensity for depression. They had the depression gene, basically, Mm. but they had very close um, social ties. And they found that when there are 
social ties like that, it overrides the depressive gene. Hmm. And these people did not develop depression. And so that is another kind of um, environmental factor that can ward against depression. But the whole point here is those kinds of external things are the things that will turn on or off your genes. So bottom line, Brian, hmm. genes are not destiny. Our health guardians are always giving us loads of advice about not just what food we should eat, but also what exercise we should take. You know, and the the uh, the word from on high is that we should be doing intense exercise for about seventy five minutes a week, minimum. And um, when you sort of look dig into this sort of stuff, say, well, where do they get that from? And the truth of the matter is, no one actually knows. <laughs> and it, it sort of gets made up, but sounds good, you know. And, yeah. and, um, <laughs> and that's just been proven this week by a Victoria University in Australia, who said, well, if you look at intense exercise, how much do we really have to do? And by intense exercise, they included things like running, uh, they're cycling, and they could be you know fast walking essentially, but they they focused in on running because that is the most popular uh, pursuit, hobby, whatever you will, exercise that people do. About three point five million Britons run regularly uh, as their exercise. Um, but how much do we need to do? Well, it ain't seventy five minutes. They reckon if you ran for 15 minutes a week, or not even every week, 15 minutes every eight, nine days, something like that, will do you the world of good. In fact, will we'll reduce your risk of fatal disease by 27%, and your overall percentage reduction for premature death from heart disease drops by 30%, and by 23% for any cancer. I mean, that's pretty impressive for the occasional run around the park, but it's far less than the, the, the health agencies suggest we should be doing. And this is a pretty impressive study. It involved more than 232,000 people tracked for 35 years. That's a lot of data. And they found that, um, indeed, the occasional runner fared just as well as the regular runner. So this 15 minutes a week or, you know, eight, nine days was absolutely enough to enjoy those sorts of health health benefits. And what was very interesting about the study was that those who actually ran more than the 15 minutes every so often weren't any better off than those who ran were the occasional joggers i think that's very interesting then i mean as i say you know we we take these things on trust but very rarely do we dig beneath the surface and say well where did you get this stuff from and in fact there's nothing there and when you actually do say well at least do something it's not doesn't have to be that much no and i mean all of our <clears throat> science that we keep seeing <clears throat> over and over again supports that the occasional runner idea 
the idea that you don't have to walk vast distances or power walk. You can just walk, you know, an aggregate of a bit. Mm. You don't need the 10,000 steps. 4,000 is enough. Um, you know, just having little bouts of 10 minutes of walking here and there throughout your day is enough. Mm. Um, even sitting when you're at work is less damaging than just you know, flopping in front of the TV as a couch potato. So that suggests a lot of different things, Brian. Mm. It suggests being engaged in some way mm. is really important. Maybe getting up and moving a bit um, throughout the day is just as important as, you know, intense, a big chunk of intense exercise. Mm. And one of the big problems with big intense exercises, oftentimes people sit throughout the day mm. and then do that intense exercise, mm. and that's it, mm. instead of just getting up. Mm. So this study sort of talks to me about, you know, what our paleo <clears throat> forefathers did. Mm. They probably do a lot of, you know, gathering, mm. and then the occasional hunting. Hunting, yes. And the hunting was, you know, that, that mm. once every nine or ten days to yes. go get themselves a rabbit or I see or myself elk. as a gatherer, actually, uh. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't see myself hunting very well. I, no, I, I, I think we'd all be vegetarian. Actually. I think. I think I'm the same. Yeah, I'm but it, but it's encouraging, isn't it, that we don't have to do an awful lot to no. to as long as we if we are going to run, then you you do it every eight or nine days. I think motivation is is one of the keys to this, and it's hard to really get yourself going. So because as you know, Lynn, I, I wear this Fitbit now, and that's. Um, that tracks my steps every day and, and it gives me little certificates. Mm -hmm. And the most recent certificate I got was the Nile certificate because I've walked the length of the Nile. And we were on a train the other day. You remember this? And I was talking to this lady about Fitbit. Because you, you end up doing Fitbit boasting, don't you? You do. And I said, oh, well, I've got a Nile certificate. And she said to me, oh, she said, I've um, I got the moon certificate. I said, oh, really? She, yeah, she said, I've walked to the moon and back. I said, wow. And she looked at me for a second and she said, I haven't really walked to the moon and back, you know. It's just, I said, yeah, I did, did get that. But, uh, <laughs> on which note, I think we have to bid adieu to everyone. But thank you for watching or listening. I'm Brian Hubbard and catch up with you again soon. I'm Lynn McTaggart. I look forward to talking with you next time. Mm -hmm.